John 21, verses 15 through 24. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Meg. Uh, boys and girls, you can head out to the store, to story keepers or to nursery. Kids are heading out. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you as we continue through this series, uh, thinking about uh, the, the final words of Jesus, the very final words of Jesus before he ascended back to heaven. And we pray that uh, for this passage, you would again give us uh, wisdom and understanding. Your Holy Spirit would help us that for each of us, Lord, at, at different paths, different places in our journey of faith, that you would speak to us powerfully through your word today, as you have committed and promised to do. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. G.K. Chesterton is quoted as saying, Art is limitation. The essence of every picture is the frame. That is, to make something great, you need to have some boundaries. You need to decide where the painting should end or the story draw to a close. Uh, some might suggest that many preachers would do well to post Chesterton's quote in a prominent place as they prepare their sermons. Who knows how many sermons, my own included, have been preached which could have been much better if the preacher had known when to stop. When some people come to the end of John's gospel, they're tempted to suggest, to suggest that John falls into a similar trap. John 21 almost seems like something of an afterthought. You come to the end of chapter 20, 
And it finishes with a succinct, seemingly uh, perfect closing summation of the gospel, chapter 20, 30 to 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Those two verses actually are the key to opening up all of John's gospel, and therefore a really appropriate summary. But then John goes on to write another 25 verses, and we were tempted to think that literarily he's sort of blown it. I want to suggest to you this morning that John chapter 21 is not an afterthought. It's not some kind of sloppily put together appendix. Rather, chapter 21, first of all, is an epilogue that balances the prologue of chapter 1. But in our context of these real final words of Jesus, uh, in chapter 21, we find that this chapter follows naturally on from chapter 20. In chapter 21, verse 14, John tells us that this was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he had been raised from the dead. That is, he connects it chronologically to the first two appearances in chapter 20. But what we're going to see this morning is that there is a difference with this third appearance. This third appearance is not trying to convince the disciples that Jesus is alive that he's been raised from the dead. At this point, they've been convinced that he's alive. In his third appearance, rather, Jesus is showing his disciples how to live on this side of the resurrection. He's fleshing out those final words of chapter 20, that by believing in Jesus, you may have life in his name. So that here we see what life looks like for us, this side of Jesus's resurrection, and in particular, It's what life looks like for those who have fallen. What do you do when you've really messed up? What do you do? Where do you go when you've really screwed things up? Is there any hope? Is there any future when you've done something that to yourself seems simply unforgivable? John's going to show us here that there is hope and there is a future and it all has to do with the grace on offer from the resurrected Jesus. This is actually the passage I preached on 14 years ago at Strasburg Presbyterian Church, Lancaster County, when this church's pastoral nominating committee, of which there's still a few of you still here, uh, the Wilkins and Janet and Carolyn were on that committee as they discerned who they would recommend to the rest of you as their pastor. And so as such, it's it's a meaningful passage for me just on those grounds, as well as really being a fabulous end to John's gospel. So here's today's sermon in a sentence, that the path to flourishing for the fallen is through the gate of grace. We're going to think about this in three parts. First of all, the big question. Secondly, the high calling. Thirdly, the way ahead. Also that we might understand that the path to flourishing for the fallen is through the gate of grace. So first of all, the the big question. John tells us at the beginning of this chapter that this appearance of Jesus takes place at the Sea of Tiberias, which is the same as the Sea of Galilee. Seven of his disciples uh, were together. We're not told where the others were, but the seven named are, are included are Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John. Two of them are left unnamed. Very briefly, Peter decides that he's going to go out in the boat to fish, and the others decide to join him. They fish all night, and they catch 
absolutely nothing. Early in the morning, then, Jesus appears on the shore. The disciples don't recognize who it is, but he tells them to throw their net on the other side of the boat, and they'll catch some fish there. Well, they catch a huge number. Later, we're told 153 fish, whereupon John realizes that the expert fisherman on the shore is none other than Jesus, and he tells the others. And you then have this bizarre moment when Peter decides he's going to jump into the water to swim to Jesus, but first he puts his coat on. Go figure. Like like the mention of the 153 uh, fish, it's, it's just one of those little eyewitness details that gives us confidence that this is not a myth or a legend, it's, a, it's an account of history. Well, the others decide it's wiser to sail to shore than swim in your coat, and when they all get there, Jesus has made them breakfast. Jesus and the disciples all eat breakfast, and then after they've finished eating, Jesus pops the big question to Peter, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we'll come back in a moment to the exact form of this first question, but the gist of it is repeated by Jesus in verse 16 and then again in verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's a tough question, isn't it? It's a tough question to ask, and it's a tough question to answer. Imagine if I was to ask you this morning to turn to the person on one side of you. You get to choose which way you turn, and you say to them, do you love me more than anybody else? Well, there's probably going to be a a number of different reactions amongst you on that. If you don't know the person sitting beside you, there's absolutely nothing to lose, whatever they, however they answer that question. But if you take it up a level, and it might mean that someone here thinks it's their lucky day with this question, because, you know, you're you're a guy sitting next to your girlfriend, and you've been wondering where exactly things stand right now, and, and now, thanks to the preacher, you've got an excuse. He said you have to ask. But it's still a bit of a tricky question, isn't it? Because there's a risk that she might say, oh, let's just be friends. And then then your hopes are dashed. But let's say you're sitting next to your husband or your wife, as some of you are. Here's someone who knows you really, really well. And in a sense, there's something hanging on this question here too. Maybe you've never asked it this way. And then imagine how it is When the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ himself, asks you the question, do you really love me? For Jesus to ask this question takes it to a whole other level because of who he is, because Jesus reads our hearts like an open book. He knows exactly what's in here. And Peter clearly knows that. Every time that Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, Peter says, you know You know, on the third time, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So here's the question for us on the big question asked by Jesus. What could be the reason for such a searching, probing question if the Lord who knows the heart is asking the question? And the answer to the purpose of the question is that it was not for Jesus to gain information or to assure himself of the love of this disciple Uh, on a day when Jesus was feeling somewhat insecure. The purpose of the big question here was for Peter's benefit, not for the benefit of Jesus. You know, in one sense, all the disciples denied Jesus prior to the crucifixion. Matthew, in his gospel, tells us that when Jesus was arrested, the reaction of the disciples was to flee. 
But I imagine that Peter's denial was particularly grievous and hurtful to Jesus. Peter was part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, he also was the one who insisted that even if all the others fell away, he would not. The implication of that, of course, was that none of the others, Jesus, love you like I do. None of the others will give you allegiance the way I give it to you. And yet here is the man who literally hours later would publicly deny Jesus three times. Three times Peter announced, I don't know him. And now here on the beach, chapter 21, in three different ways, Jesus wants to take Peter back to those denials. And he does so firstly by recreating the setting of the first denial. That is, before the disciples had landed on the beach, Jesus had built a fire. The word that John uses here for fire appears only one other time in the New Testament. It's by John in chapter 18, verse 18, where Peter is standing warming himself by a fire as he denies Jesus. Secondly, the content of Jesus' first question was intended to take Peter back to his original claim. When, when Jesus asked Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It surely reminded Peter that that had been the essence of his claim when he had said, others may fall away, but I never will. So Jesus takes Peter back to his denial through the setting, through the content of the question, and then thirdly, in the form of the conversation. Jesus asked Peter the same question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Some people try to make a distinction between the different Greek words that are used for love in these questions, but when, when you read through the rest of John, you realize these words for love are, are pretty much interchangeable. In each case, love is, is love. And each time Jesus asks the big question, Peter replies, Lord, you know I love you. But it's on the third time that John tells us that Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked the question a third time. Not hurt because he thinks Jesus is doubting him, but hurt because with the third question came the painful reminder of the three denials. Jesus brings Peter to the, to the denials to bring him to a place of profound confession and asking the big question, do you love me? He takes Peter to a place that Peter has not yet come to, which is the place of repentance. So the big question is, do you love me? But interspersed in this conversation between the big questions is our second point, the high calling that Jesus gives to Peter. There's part of us that reads this dialogue between Jesus and Peter and thinks to ourselves, you know, each time Jesus asks the love question, it feels like he's just kind of laying it on a bit thick, kind of, kind of twisting the knife a little bit and then a bit more. Why, why couldn't he back off a little bit on Peter? And you're right, Jesus is twisting the knife, but it's the knife here of a loving surgeon. Because each time Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He then follows it up with this incredible call on Peter's life. The first time is in verse 15. He says, feed my lambs. Next time, verse 16, tend my sheep. Third time, verse 17, feed my sheep. He uses this, this shepherd language, pastoral language, leader language. And in so doing, he offers Peter 
in response to his, his repentance, this incredible affirmation. Jesus wants Peter to see the brokenness of who he is, but the minute Peter opens up, even just a, a smidgen, Jesus drives down into the heart of hearts this most incredible affirmation and love. Jesus says, Peter, you failed me. Now take charge. Peter, you failed me. Now go lead. Peter, you failed me. Plunge your failure into my grace and it will make you greater than you were before. Because the path to flourishing for the fallen goes through the gate of grace every time. Plunge your failure into my grace and it will make you greater than you were before. That's so contrary to what our world tells us. Because in the workplace, it usually doesn't work out that way, does it? If you blow it, if you really blow it, you tend not to get a second chance. It's probably a large part of why we hate to admit our failings and our weaknesses and our sin. We feel that if people see who we really are, we, we won't have their respect. We want to appear strong. We want to show people that we're right. We want people to think that we have it all together. Because if you blow it, you tend not to get a second chance. But with Jesus, it's the exact reverse. Jesus is the Lord of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and on and on and on. He wants Peter to see, he wants all of us to see that the more you're willing to admit of your brokenness, the more he empowers and equips you. The more you see of your failings and you repent of them, the more you'll understand how your heart works, the more you'll rely on Jesus and not yourself, and the better you'll understand other people and be able to encourage and serve them. The more you plunge your failure into his grace, the greater you will be. Because the path to flourishing for the fallen is through the gate of grace. Now, it's only when you've plunged your failure into his grace then that you're, you're equipped, as Jesus does here with Peter, to fulfill Jesus' high calling or to nuance it slightly differently. It's only when you've acknowledged and confessed your own spiritual need that you'll be moved to reach out to meet the needs of others. Dick Lucas is the retired rector of St. Helens Bishopsgate Church, uh, an Anglican church in London, and he tells the story of an occasion that he was invited to speak for a week at Stony Brook School on Long Island. Once or twice a day, he was to speak in chapel to these teenagers, but to his dismay early in the week, the headmaster got up and said, if any of you young students would like to get counsel from Reverend Lucas on personal or spiritual matters, you may be excused from class in order to have a personal conference with him. Well, that was like a red rag to a bull out of class. Lucas's dismay at this stemmed from the fact that he was and is a confirmed old bachelor, not used to the trauma of teenage angst. He said, to put it mildly, I have always found children to be a trial. Well, after, after one day of listening to hour after hour after hour of 12 to 14-year-old girls talking about a particular boy in the class, saying over and over again, he doesn't even know I exist. Lucas wanted to say, you little twit, you, you'll have forgotten about him in six months. This is not the end of the world. What is wrong with you? Real compassion. He tried hard to be compassionate, but he, he kept asking God, why can't you just bring someone into my office who wants to take me to the theater or for a drink? Well, after one particular appointment with, uh, where he was getting especially frustrated with himself and the situation, 
He turned to his Bible for strength. He opened it up to John chapter 21, and he read the words, feed my lambs. And he said it knocked him flat. He said, even if you feed a cat, you'll get something out of it. The cat will nuzzle you. The cat will let you stroke it. But when you feed a lamb, you get nothing out of it. Lucas realized that that's what we're being called to here. Feed my lambs means love and care and serve people. The relationships with whom may end up giving you no intellectual, emotional, psychological, or social benefit at all. You may get nothing out of it at all. They're getting something out of it, but you're not getting anything out of it. And he thought to himself, how could anybody do that? Only by seeing that this is exactly how Jesus has loved us. That while we were still enemies, as Paul puts it, Christ died for us. He goes to the cross for those who are, who are fallen, who have failed him, who have denied him. He goes to the cross getting nothing out of it except the wrath of hell and the loss of the face of his father. At that point, he got absolutely nothing so that we would get everything. And so you take that in, you plunge your failure into his grace, and then you realize from there he gives you the high calling of feeding his lambs as he has fed you. Because the path to flourishing for the fallen goes through this gate of grace. So the big question, do you love me? The high calling, feed my lambs. And then thirdly, the way ahead. We pick the story up with Jesus, his next words to Peter, verses 18 to 19. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now, commentators tell us that Jesus's language here pointed to the fact that Peter would also die by some form of crucifixion. But what's Peter's reaction to Jesus' words? Look at verses 20 to 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So Peter turns and he sees John following, and he says, Lord, well, what about him? I mean, it's classic, isn't it? Okay, Lord, okay, fair enough. I hear what you're saying about me. But is he going to suffer like I'm suffering? What's his story? Now, there's a fascinating whole backstory uh, through the Gospels behind this question concerning the closeness and the rivalry uh, that was shared between Peter and John. Peter and John shared an enormous amount of history going all, way, way back. They, you know, they were fishing business partners before they were called uh, to be disciples, called to follow Jesus at the same time, part of Jesus' inner circle of three. There's all this history which shows that of all the disciples, the actual differences between Peter and John were the least, and that without a doubt created a certain spiritual sibling rivalry between the two. You may recall a few weeks ago, we actually saw a hint of this when we were looking at the first part of John chapter 20. John describes that once Mary Magdalene had told the disciples that Jesus's tomb was empty, there's something of a foot race between Peter and John to get there. The other gospel writers, none of them mention it, but John does because he obviously mentions it. In fact, it's even become the subject of, of a meme. Were we out? Did we have the meme there? 
Was it this slide before? Oh, there it is. He's like, don't write it. Don't you dare write it. And then he, he writes it. Well, what does he write? Verses 20 to, or to the, verses, uh, chapter 23 to 4. So Peter went out with the other disciple. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So, so both are running, but John just happens to drop in there that the other disciple himself outran Peter. And John isn't even satisfied just mentioning the victory once. He goes on to say that Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived, you know, eventually, and went into the tomb. Peter goes into the tomb. Then John tells us, then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, just in case you'd forgotten, also went inside. Now, you bring all of that to this final scene in John 21, and it kind of adds a little bit of spice to the scene, doesn't it? Jesus tells Peter that basically he will die by crucifixion, and Peter's immediate response is to reflect not on what Jesus has said about his own story, but to want to know how that compares with what will happen to John. Like, well, he's going to get crucified too, right, Lord? And Jesus replies, verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter, what is that to you? The Chronicles of Narnia Aslan says at one point to Shasta, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Because God has given to each of us a unique story. And rather than looking over our shoulders, trying to wonder what he's doing in other people's stories, Jesus says the way ahead is to live out our stories. This 2005 book, To Be Told, Dan Allender suggests that God is not only the authority in our lives, he's also the author of our lives. That for every single one of us, God is writing the story of our life. And because God is both the authority and the author, what has happened in that story so far can give us a sense of direction for the future of that story. And so Allender in the book encourages us to look at, you know, look at your story so far and spend time thinking back over your life and reminding yourself of those experiences and those relationships that have shaped you to be who you are today. And some of those experiences for each of us have been delightful. And some of them have been extremely painful, perhaps so painful that it's even hard just to go back there in your mind. But as God has weaved all those experiences together, he has written and is writing a unique story. Because there is no other story the same as your life. And that means that you are uniquely called and equipped to reveal God in a way that no other human being can. Isn't that amazing? That God wants to use your past to open up your future. Your calling is to reveal God through the themes that he's woven into your story and into your character. Which is exactly what Jesus was doing with Peter here. And it's exactly what he's doing with you. So he says, live out your story. Don't get worried about other people's stories. He just wants you to live out yours in the context of the bigger story. And it's the second part of what Jesus tells Peter here that provides that context for living out your story. Because the way ahead is to live out your story, but it's to live out your story 
as you follow Jesus. And specifically, I think here at the end of John, as you follow the crucified and resurrected Jesus. That we need to remember both parts of Jesus' story because to, to follow the crucified Jesus grounds us in his love and to follow the resurrected Jesus gives us future hope. Let me just tease these out for a moment as we close. I, I doubt that standing there on the beach that morning with Jesus, Peter fully understood all the significance of what Jesus had just accomplished on the cross. That Jesus' death was the full payment for our sin if we put our trust in him. That he went as our substitute to take the penalty that we deserve, to take it on himself. But P Peter would come to grasp it and understand the depth of it. You just have to read his letters to understand that. And one of the main things you realize when you ponder what Jesus did on the cross is his measureless love for us. That he gave up his father for you. He suffered literal hell for you because of love. And life on this side of the resurrection is all about living in light of his love for you. And that includes even when you think life is unfair. God does give each of us different experiences different relationships, different abilities. But as you look at those things through the lens of his love expressed supremely at the cross, you start to realize that the, the Christian life is, is a bit like a one-room schoolhouse. And what makes life fair is not that the exam questions for each of us are all the same. So that when you look over your shoulder at the person's paper next to you and you see that your neighbor is being asked to count the number of apples on the page and you look back at your paper and it's complicated long division, you want to say, wait a minute, this is not a fair test. But you see, it's adjusted for the individual level for each person. Your neighbor's just out of kindergarten. You're in high school. And that's true for the tests of life as well. They're not all the same because they have to be different in a sense in order to be fair. So John's test would be different to Peter's test. But ultimately it's all an expression of God's love because God is the perfect counselor, gives you the life that will make you into the person of glory that God wants you to be. And so of course your life and your story is gonna be different to others. You're not them and they're not you. So keep following the crucified Christ and be grounded in his love. And then secondly, follow the not just crucified, but the also resurrected Jesus who gives you future hope. Peter, Peter had heard the words, follow me before from the lips of Jesus. It's just he'd never heard it from a person who had been dead and was standing before him fully alive. And so now to follow Jesus had a new dimension that Peter was, was unaware of previously, and that is future hope. It's what he starts his first letter with, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 in First Peter. Future, certain hope. Peter was all concerned about John and what John had and what his story involved. What hadn't yet sunk in for Peter were the massive consequences for himself and indeed for every follower of Jesus, that Jesus has defeated death and he's alive now. That Jesus' resurrection means that a future is coming that will be a complete fulfillment of your deepest desires beyond your wildest imagination. And that if you and I can live with that reality branded on our hearts and minds, 
Only then will you be able to live with the disappointments of this life and the incompleteness of this world and be able to avoid the temptations of always having to compare your life to other people. The path to flourishing for the fallen goes through the gate of grace and as you go through that gate of grace, Jesus instructs you to keep living out your story as you follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words to Peter and how they are so helpful for us in our own lives, for all of us in one way or another are fallen and have failed you like Peter. Let us never be slow or shy to plunge our failures into your grace and see how you bring us to new levels of greatness, new places of service, new discoveries in the story of our lives that you are writing. Thank you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.